Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. Asia appears to be the center of geopolitics of late, due mostly to three great powers in the region, Russia, China, and India. How does the changing dynamics of this important region of the world affect the rest of the globe and specifically space commerce? In this third of our series of geopolitics and its impact on space commerce, we'll talk about India with our guest, Dr. Namrata Goswami, a global security consultant with a special interest in space. And Namrata, welcome back. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's a pleasure. Always good to see you. The world has been focused on the growth and expansion of China over the past 25 years, but India has been growing and progressing almost under the radar, especially over the past five to 10 years. So what have been the drivers of that growth? Sure. Uh, thank you for that question. So there are actually three main drivers for India's growth, underpinned by a much larger systemic driver as well. So the first driver is the fact that India has a large middle class, uh, about 600 million. And so that results in a lot of capital accumulation. And so which means that that particular capital accumulation can be then utilized for funding, as well as sustaining the second driver, which is private investments in infrastructure, which includes railroad infrastructure, infrastructure in terms of digital economy that the Prime Minister of India is trying to bring about, including digitized monetized systems, which makes transactions much more transparent and easier. And then efficiency of services, for example, e-commerce, e-education, bureaucratized processes that are much more transparent. So the second driver is, of course, growing investment in terms of private entities, but also foreign direct investment. So India has a foreign direct investment of about $84 billion in 2022. Compared to China, it's less. China has about $189 billion. But what is insightful is that that foreign direct investment is going towards developing India's high-end technology, for example, software and hardware for computers and other related technological capabilities. And then the final driver of India's growth is a common taxation system, which the government of India is instituting, as well as the uh, critical fact that the government has brought about several reforms, for example, reforms in land, reforms in manufacturing, reforms in which uh, processes of getting licenses are getting easier. And so all that has resulted in an economy which is about 7.2% today in terms of growth rate. And then the final systemic driver is India's demographic dividend. So India's demographic dividend, which constitutes about 600 million people between the age of 20 and 59, is going to remain a dividend till about 2025, 2055, sorry, 2056. And the peak will be reached in about 2041, where the contribution of that particular workforce will reach about 59%. So that demographic dividend is an asset that India has that also contributes to the uh, global uh, growth of India. So today, in terms of workforce, those under the age of 35 constitutes about 65%, which is very high compared to, say, other countries. So those are the reasons why you see a growth in the Indian economy, supported by government 
efforts to make it more transparent and much more efficient. And let's talk about that government for just a moment, because from an American perspective, Prime Minister Narendra Modi is kind of a different kind of politician for India. Is that a fair assessment? And if so, what is different about how he governs? That's a question that will require me to explain a little bit the Indian parliamentary system. Okay. So India is a little, uh, India is a different democratic uh, system compared to the U.S. The U.S. has a presidential system with U.S. Congress and the judiciary separation of power. India has a parliamentary system where a prime minister is not what, what people vote on. People vote on the party that the prime minister belongs to. And if you have a charismatic leader, which is good for the party, but everybody else in the party also has to function and win. So in the Indian parliamentary system, which has about 543 members of parliament, amongst which you would require about 272 seats to get majority and form a government. Mm -hmm. The Bharatiya Janata Party that Modi represents in the last election in 2019 got about 308 seats, which means it's way above the majority. And then it has a coalition government with the National Democratic Alliance that increases the seats even further. So given that, what Prime Minister Modi has an advantage because of the fact that he has majority in parliament, which gives him the ability to pass bills, to enact reforms, for example, despite opposition, because the party will vote, for example, what he wants to get achieved, right? And so that means that what he's achieving is supported by the majority of the population that voted for the BJP to be right. in power. Now, some of the reasons why Prime Minister Modi is winning is what he actually projects as his agenda for India. One is the unemployment rate. So India has a very high unemployment rate of about 9%, according to World Bank statistics, compared to about 6.5% globally. So what he's arguing is that it is absolutely vital for the government of India to establish skill-based ministries, enable India's more than 600 million young population to develop manufacturing capability, go beyond service sector, where the contribution is about 30% of the workforce today, and then the second important thing is that what he argues is that his basic focus is on building long-term educational capability, investment capability, enabling startups to help Indian families to go beyond just surviving. Mm -hmm. So those kind of messages resonates with the Indian public. And so that is why I would argue that he might be a different kind of politician because after all, he's a prime ministerial uh, you know, representation of India. He he has majority, which even the earlier Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh did not have. And we saw how much he suffered in terms of getting bills through. Mm -hmm. And so that gives Modi a lot of confidence in terms of what he wants to achieve for India. India is a nuclear nation surrounded by Pakistan, Russia, and China, which also have nuclear weapons. And how does that dynamic then affect the region? So the fact that India is located geographically within an environment where it has two nuclear weapon states at its border, one is China with a very large number of nuclear weapons, and then you have Pakistan and India. India also has nuclear weapons. 
Now, despite the fact that both China and India have no first use policy in terms of nuclear weapons, Pakistan does not. So that means that any decision that India takes in terms of foreign policy posture, power projection, building partnerships across the globe is always informed by that particular environment of nuclear presence and also the fact that both borders, for example, the western border of India with Pakistan and China are both disputed by Pakistan and China. The eastern border with China is disputed by China. China claims a lot of land in India. And so the, the, the fear of nuclear escalation is always there, right? Mm -hmm. And so that constrains India's behavior in terms of foreign policy, and it has to navigate that world and has to uh, kind of balance itself. For our audience here in the United States, think of a situation if the US had two nuclear armed neighbors, for example, Canada and then Mexico, and has disputed borders and they and they constantly escalated, right? We saw the how the US responded to even the presence of nuclear missiles in Cuba. So it's it's that kind of a situation that India has to survive in. Is it fair to say that Prime Minister Modi appears to be treading pretty carefully to remain non-aligned with any geopolitical entity or alliance? And if that's true, can he keep India neutral? That's a great strategic question to ask. So historically, as you mentioned in your question, India has been non-aligned and has been a champion of the non-aligned movement that started in 1956 at the Bandun Conference. And the representation of India was, of course, India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who came from a completely different party, the Congress party. And he believed that it was in India's interest to be non-aligned because of the uh, Cold War, the rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. Fast forward to today, what is interesting is that Prime Minister Modi seems to be moving away from that non-aligned posture. Mm. What is interesting is that in the foreign policy posture and decision that India is taking since he came into power around 2014, the idea is to establish multiple alignment structures that benefits India's national interest. So India is starting to have a very strong relationship with the United States across different domains, be it land, sea, air, space, and cyber. India has signed several uh, doc, uh, agreements with the United States for more military-to-military -military collaboration. And for the first time, the comprehensive strategic partnership that India signed with the US this year, when Prime Minister Modi visited uh, the US, includes two Indian liaison officers at the Pentagon for the first time. Mm -hmm. So you can see that India is starting to change. What is fascinating to me is that India is also a member of the quadrilateral security dialogue that includes Japan, Australia, and the US, and is very much focused on a free Indo-Pacific. So, and at, at the same time, now this is what puzzles audiences across the world, right? India also has to navigate its relationship with China and Russia for the reason that China, of course, has a deep influence on India because of its disputes, because of the fact that it is right there at the border, right, with nuclear weapons. So that India always has to consider its relationship with China. And then with Russia, because India historically has been dependent on Russia for military hardware, has had a deep historical relation with the Soviet Union, balancing that is critical for India's own political culture, strategic image, and also in some sense to be seen as a broker of international peace between these two alignment structures. 
Well, there's no doubt that India is rapidly expanding its power as a high-tech economy. So what are the greatest threats and opportunities? So India is actually now focused on building its high-tech uh, technologies. This includes not just space, which we'll talk about in a bit, but also quantum. So India has taken decisions, including collaboration with the United States to build quantum communication and capabilities. Uh, India is also focusing on building artificial intelligence, for example, and robotics, and wants to move also to manufacturing and not just services in this high-end technological sectors. The reason why this has been a focus and how this is an opportunity for India is that India is also starting to focus on reforming its education system, for example, supporting STEM. Uh, Indians contribute across the world to the global uh, STEM-based uh, work service and workforce. And so, and the second reason for this growth is that there has been a conscious decision taken by the Indian government to build innovation and made in India high-end technology. The challenges that India will face is how do you ensure that an Indian employee today that contributes about $8,000 to the Indian economy annually compared to say Malaysia, in which an employee contributes about $34,000 to the mm. value chain, right? India will have to build skills. India will have to upskill its uh, about 600 million workers that are going to enter the workforce, move from services to manufacturing, which is a big challenge, and also build efficiency into their system. India, while trying to build efficiency and the digital infrastructure, still suffers from enormous levels of inefficiency because of bad infrastructure, uh, badly directed policies that wants to build reform, uh, raise the unemployment rate. So even in the high-end technology sector, this could become an issue if not addressed in the next 10 years. Space was a factor in the conversations, the policy conversations of the latest G20 summit, but neither President Xi Jinping or President Putin attended the G20 summit, of which India was the host. Why is that the case? So I would argue that this was this was the writing on the wall, right? Mm. So uh, India is, of course, now the uh, now has the presidency of the G20, and so if you look at the G20 summit, as you mentioned, space was a very critical component. There were conversations about how India will hope to increase its contribution to the space economy from. 8 billion to about uh, 40 billion by 2040. And also the fact that India wants to ensure that G20 nations are also with India. The statistics is that India is the fastest growing economy among the G20, right? With 7.2% growth today, forecasted to, about, to, to be about 6.7% until about 2040, which is a high rate of growth, right? right. And so the now the reason, having said that, having given you the advantages of why India is a critical member of the G20, I think what is happening is that with President Xi Jinping not attending the G20 summit, the signal by China to India is clear that China is viewing India as part of the Western effort to build a free Indo-Pacific, for example, which includes mm -hmm. an independent or a status quo maintained Taiwan. India has strong relationships with Taiwan. 
India hosts the Dalai Lama in Tibet, who is a challenge to China's legitimacy in Tibet. India is forging more and more closer relationships, for example, with the US. That's a clear signaling to China and that the conflict at the border is increasing. And so this is going to become a headache for India because the biggest competitor to India will be China. China is the actor that is right there at the border. And with President Xi Jinping not attending the G20, he's also sending a message to India and the West that China is going to build alternate strategic alignments, right? And that's becoming very clear. For example, in the BRICS summit in August, China signed an agreement with South Africa to become a member of the International Lunar Research Station that right. China leads. So very clear demonstration. Now with President Putin, of course he would have, if at all, come in by video conference, right? And right. which was a medium he had. He did that with the BRICS summit, but he didn't do that with the G20, uh, which was interesting because India-Russia has had good relationships. And so that seemed like him expressing a kind of discomfort with India getting more and more closer to the US. And if you look at the G20 summit statement, I mean, Russia, of course, sent its foreign minister, but Russia also says that the G20 joint statement was very balanced, did not mention Russia at all. And Ukraine was not happy with the G20 summit because it did not condemn Russia, right? Yeah. It did say that Ukraine has to become peaceful and is a is a concern for the international community, but never said anything about Russia. So in that contextualization, it is a strategic surprise for me that Russia would take such a decision because while India might say that this is okay, India will factor in the critical absence of the Russian president, Vladimir Putin. But it also tells you that Putin is viewing the relationship with China as the most important value addition in the context he finds himself today. And the fact that Russia, oh, sorry, uh, the fact that China did not attend the meeting uh, through its president was a strategic uh, concern for Russia. And it wanted to showcase some level of convergence with the Chinese president as well. My guest is Dr. Namrata Goswami on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to be sure you don't miss any of the podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Let's talk about space now, Namrata, because India is on a roll in space. What are some of the recent achievements they've made? Sure. Uh, thank you. I mean, the the biggest achievement for India is what everybody's talking about, right? The Chandrayaan-3 right. lunar mission that landed on the south pole of the moon on August 23rd. So that's a big achievement from both technological and strategic point of view. Technologically, because as we know, there is very few or very limited domain awareness of the South Pole. There are lots of craters there. And so to land there is uh, difficult. And so the fact that India succeeded in its second attempt and succeeded well with a mm -hmm. cost-effective program is a big achievement. Technologically, the other important achievement is, of course, the fact that the Indian rover and the lander, Vikram and Pragyan, have several scientific instruments that for the first time tells us about the surface and about eight cent centimeter below the surface lunar temperature, which is which is 60 times higher than the above. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting contribution to mm. understanding of lunar temperature, right? So which means that we can utilize that kind of data for uh, human habitation, if at all we right. want to achieve that. 
And then the uh, experiment also confirmed the presence of sulfur and detected other elements like aluminum, titanium, iron ore. The second big achievement for India is sending the first Aditya 1 mission to Sun Earth Lagrange Point 1. Okay. And what the idea is to park it at Lagrange Point 1 to study the sun and the sun's corona, right? And so that's something, again, would be a big achievement for India. I think the, the other two achievements for India are, of course, the Mars mission that India succeeded for the first time as an Asian nation in 2014 uh, when it sent an orbiter and it hopes mm -hmm. to send another mission by 2030. And then I think the final achievement for India is the fact that it has been able to build an end-to-end -end space capability that is low cost and efficient, right? So the Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, the Geosynchronous uh, Launch Vehicle Mark III, that is a medium lift rocket, all these add to India's attractiveness as a space power that can show the world that you can do a mission, for example, like the moon at a low cost and in an efficient way and everything build indigenously. So these are some of the major achievements for India in the last few years. But the U.S.-India partnership in space is growing. But why has that been the case, given India's tendency to be non-aligned? So there are certain reasons why the U.S.-India relationship has grown, especially in space, which is uh, fascinating to me. So I think this started with the visit of Bill Clinton in 2000. So it's been about 23 years in the making. It seems mm -hmm. like it's sudden. So with Bill Clinton's visit and then with George W. Bush uh, signing the nuclear civilian deal with India in 2005, the relationship started changing. Fast forward to 2023, India has actually, as I mentioned before, signed several military logistics agreement with the US and today actually has signed a comprehensive strategic partnership with the US. The reason for this is that I think India and the US have made the calculation that both countries' demographic dividend, both countries' conversions in terms of democratic values, both countries' convergent in terms of the kind of world it wants to see, which is a free global order that supports trade and will have recourse to independent judiciaries in case something goes wrong, right? And supports global frameworks like the United Nations. So those are the reasons why the two uh, countries have come together. Also, the diasporas play a big role. The US is a big Indian diaspora. And so knowing each other's society, knowing each other's structures has led to that. I'll end by saying that for me, the most strategically critical development for the India-US relationship is this growing space partnership, right? Mm -hmm. And these are at different levels. One is both countries collaborating in terms of setting certain regulatory frameworks and mission goals for their lunar program. So India signing the Artemis Accord that the US leads is a critical factor. The Indian calculation was, of course, one, it will be partnering with the most advanced nation in the world in terms of space capability. So NASA will have a lot to offer to India. For NASA, getting India a major spacefaring nation with the only operational real-time capability to go to the moon today mm -hmm. is a big, big win and a strategic win because India is a major power, the largest demographically a blessed nation in the world, if I may use that word, right? And so those are the reasons. I think with the strategic partnership in space, what is missed by people is that next year, India and the US are going to go to the International Space Station together. 
So again, that's a big deal. And then mm -hmm. that has retaliated in the G20, uh, on, the, on the sideline of the G20, uh, when President Biden visited India, they signed another joint statement that reiterates that particular effort. And then finally, what is fascinating to me is that both India and the U.S. are talking about developing planetary defense vis-a-vis -vis, uh, deflecting an asteroid or an access to asteroid data. That's a big deal, which means that collaboration can then extend to possibilities like nuclear technology, the idea that can we use nuclear explosives to deflect an asteroid so that we do not suffer the fates of the dinosaurs, right? And mm -hmm. so that I think are very critical developments uh, in India. I think the challenge for India, US in terms of space is the lack of consensus when it comes to space norms. So uh, India has abstained from supporting the United States, for example, in its efforts to bring about a moratorium for anti-satellite ban at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. uh, also, India has abstained in supporting the open-ended working group because there are differences in terms of how do you, uh, you know, explain a concept like responsibility. Like, right. because it is focused on building responsible behavior, India's argument is that who would decide that and how would you decide that? And the concern is that without a treaty-based obligation, India's position is that you might then create obstacles for emerging space nations to build space technology that could have dual use, right? And so there are differences in terms of norm building, but I'm sure they will work towards getting to some level of understanding together. So the US has NASA, India has ISRO, the Indian Space Research Organization. But like all space programs, ISRO has had a series of failures that were corrected leading to success. That being said, what is next for ISRO? So, as you said, and Israel also, if we we shouldn't forget, uh, did not succeed in its first attempt to land on the South Pole, right? In mm -hmm. 2019, it learned from its mistakes. So, the Israel chief pointed out that the basic premise of the Chandrayaan three mission was a failure mission. So they had accounted for every failure possible, including the software going rogue within the lander so that even in that case, it will land, right? So right. that was the thinking and philosophy. So what is next for Israel? So this is again, very critical. So in 2023, India instituted its space policy. So if you look at the space policy document, it's a lot about what Israel's role will be going forward. So Israel functions under the Department of Space. India has a Department of Space, unlike the US, which does not have such a similar department, right? right. And so, and that is under the prime minister's office. So it's at the highest level of policymaking. And under the Department of Space of the Indian, uh, Israel, the Indian Space Research Organization. So according to the current directive put out by the Department of Space, Israel will limit itself to research and development and India's entire space ecosystem will be made private. So mm -hmm. while Israel will support space missions, missions to other celestial bodies will continue to do very critical scientific research, uh, but the launch platforms will continue, for example, the PSLV and the GSLV, but most of this will be slowly moved to the private sector, including the manufacturing of India's rockets. So that is what is next for ISRO. In terms of big missions, 
ISRO is planning to collaborate with Japan to go back to the moon to scale the South Pole of the moon for resources as well as surveying the South Pole for future habitation. This will happen in 2026. So that's a big mission coming. That's the Chandrayaan-4 mm -hmm. mission. Israel, as you know, is partnering with NASA uh, through the Artemis program. Japan is an mm -hmm. original founding member of the Artemis program. So that's a very critical component for Israel. And finally, I think Israel is focusing on building uh, space domain awareness, building a satellite navigation system. So those are the big missions that are forward, that are in Israel's future in the next five, 10 years. You just mentioned that India is beginning to allow private space companies and moving towards privatization of their space program. How bright is the future for those companies in India? So I think very bright, because when I was doing field work in India in, before COVID, and mm. then I went back to India last year, uh, what I noticed was a big difference. So First, the biggest difference I saw was the lack of reticence in terms of Israel to be more transparent and more open, including, you know, you would not realize this, but most of us who have studied India's space program have been not very happy with the lack of transparency with in, in regard to Israel, especially when it comes to explaining their missions to the people, not mm -hmm. just the people globally, but to the citizens of India. What I observed with the Chandrayaan-3 mission was fascinating. The amount of detail, the amount of scientific explanation of the mission that ISRO put out, the amount of transparency in terms of what data is being collected that is being put on X is just astounding to me. This is a government agency which, which was so caught in red tape and so bureaucratic, suddenly becoming so transparent, which means that for the private space sector, the fact that India is reforming, India is opening up, becoming more transparent. India has instituted several organizations, for example, the New Space India, InSpace, which is a body that is going to be the single stop place for licenses for space startups. The fact that India has taken a decision to move funding to the private sector to build rockets and to build satellites and to build propulsion systems means that India's future in terms of space startup is pretty exciting. India has also recently, ISRO recently signed an agreement with Amazon Web Services to provide cloud, uh, cloud computing so that Indian space startups can take advantage of images, but also build skills. And the fact that India is focused on building skills through funding and education for the younger generation that wants to get into space startup means that this enabling environment will create a moment a little bit like India's information technology moment, where India is one of the biggest contributors of in the world to that service sector. So I see the future of India's space startups bright. I'll end with a challenge, and this is the challenge for India. So while the future looks very bright in terms of institutions, in terms of funding, in terms of skill, young population, STEM education, the challenge for India is to provide clarity in terms of why is it going to space, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at the space policy document, it's more like a document that explains to all of us about the bureaucratic structure of India's institution and the new space institution that India has instituted. But it's not really a space policy document because a space policy document in my mind should tell us the different missions India is doing and why. 
right? For example, the moon mission, the Mars mission, the national satellite constellation. Also, India needs to tell us in a space policy document, what is it doing in terms of national security space, which is completely missing in the document, right? So that's a challenge. So while you build capability, technology, skill set, without identifying the missions and how it's going to contribute back to India's mm -hmm. economy, that explanation is not very clear. While there is clarity in terms of how India's investments, so for example, in a low earth constellation uh, is clear because it means communication, navigation, the data that it generates, that builds the economy. But then it's not really clear as to how India's investment, for example, on its lunar program, or its Mars program or large scale infrastructure building in space is contributing to India's economy. So that kind of explanation, China has done a very good job in explaining to its people. So that's a challenge India will have going forward. There was a study done recently, and I don't recall which of the companies did the study, and so I'm not going to mention a name, but it basically found that people don't understand the value of space and they, they just don't get it. Is that kind of what you're saying about India, is that people, that the general public needs to be sold on the value of the space programs? I think, yes, I am saying that, right? And I agree with you. I mean, it's just, just not India's problem. Even in the U.S., if you talk to the person on the street about Artemis, they don't get it. Right. Right. Okay. Why are we investing $94 billion on an Artemis program? What does it get us? We've already sent humans to the moon. Uh, you know, in the 1960s. And so, okay, we want to send a woman and a person of color, but how does that contribute to my life, right? right? Besides just feeling pride. And I think that's why it's so critical to understand that the inspiration from, from space has changed in the 21st century. You know, it has to be much more than the symbolic missions, right? So India also has to do a much better job of explaining to its people. You know, you will have moments like this when landing on the moon will create a lot of enthusiasm and excitement for India for the first time or going to Mars. But And, the, and what is interesting is that the Indian prime minister has instituted a radio program called Monkey Bath, which means... Uh, you know, thoughts and words from uh, my heart or from, from my soul. And each he engages the Indian uh, population and radio is a big medium of communication as to why India, why Indians should get excited in terms of their space program and how it builds India's image. But I haven't seen ISRO going in terms of explaining the, for the economics of their space program. Mm -hmm. how it contributes to the Indian uh, people's life. There are generally, there are very generic statements, which the space community understands that this is about weather forecasting. This is about disaster management. This is about agriculture monitoring, but you need to have more programs that go to the person on the street to explain to them how this benefits them and to explain to them how it benefits them monetarily, right? People mm -hmm. care about such things and, and how it, creates a future where space technology is going to become such a critical part of you, right? That kind of explanation is not there yet. You know, for example, if you go, to, I, I was in a very remote area in Northeast India last year, and I was speaking to some of the younger folks there, and they didn't have a real clear understanding of why India was so focused on space, right? right. And so while the Indian government and the Israel scientists might think that all of India understands this, there are those pockets and remote areas that don't get it, 
right? And so that's what I'm trying to say, that you need to have a message much more transparent. And that's why I would say that I was happy with the way the Chandrayaan-3 mission was being explained. Mm -hmm. uh, but in and, and terms of the scientific uh, demonstration, the payloads, very well done. Now explain to the people in all areas of India why this is such a critical mission. Sounds like we need to boldly go where no one has gone before, if I may borrow a phrase. So do you estimate any kind of a time frame for a manned space program from India? So India is start. Uh, so this is interesting. So India does have a human spaceflight program called the Gaganyan program, mm -hmm. Gaganyan program. So the idea is that India wants to send Indian citizens to low Earth orbit by 2024, 20, 2025, right? Okay. Earlier, Indian astronauts from the US Indian Air Force trained in the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center, right? Mm -hmm. That changed this year. So India signed a comprehensive strategic partnership where human spaceflight program is going to become a key strategic convergence area between the US and India. And Indian astronauts will train in the Johnson Space Center. There you go. There you India go shift right in mm -hmm. terms of even it's the training which is a big deal sure in the g20 and i'll end there so because you asked a very important question in terms of human spaceflight because that's critical right china has a very interesting human spaceflight program mm -hmm. and has taken the decision to land chinese taikonauts on the moon by 2030 and is building the long march 10 specifically for that particular mission so uh in the G20 sidelines, India and the U.S. signed a joint statement in which they have decided to sign another strategic document by the end of 2023 between ISRO and NASA to make human spaceflight a key area of strategic cooperation. So you can see that India is taking the strategic calculus that collaborating with the United States will upscale India's human spaceflight program. So I see India and the U.S. succeeding in going to the International Space Station next year, which will be a big first for India, right at the time when Russia is threatening to exit the International Space Station. Right. And then uh, India can also, uh, India will want to send Indian astronauts via the Artemis program to the moon as well. So I see that future happening in the next, uh, actually in the next five, seven years. So one thing more, and we do this every time, but look out over the next 10 to 15 years in space commerce and India's role in it and tell me what you see. So in terms of the next 10 years, let's take uh, 2033 right? Mm -hmm. So I see India scaling up its contribution of its space technology uh, and space commerce to the global economy by about 9%, right? I see that happening. It's about 2% today. I say that because of all the changes I have seen. I mean, the amount of exponential change that happened in its uh, policymaking, regulations, the fact that India had four space startups in 2014 and has about 100 and 42 space startups today, very similar to China, is an amazing feat in the in the few years from 2014 to 2023. That's a large increase, right? So now the I think by 2033, it will be 9% contribution to the global economy. I think India will increase 
its contribution to the global economy, as mentioned by the Minister of Science and Technology, to about 50 billion. I would put it up more than 40 billion. India would become a key player in building space launch systems and reusable rockets. I see that happening because India has taken the policy decision to build reusable rockets to have the first prototype uh, in operation by 2025, which is just two years away, right? right? And so if India has a reusable rocket, that's going to change the access to space even more. We talk about Starship, right? Because of it's a right. heavy lift. Rocket. India might not have a heavy lift, but will might have a light low like a like a PSLV, which is mm-hmm. a, which is much much lower than even the Long March Five. Is that's it kind of comparable to a Falcon Nine. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, more or less comparable, but okay. not comparable directly, right? So yeah. I'm forgetting how much ton it can lift, but it's much lower than the Long March Five. I think it's about four to if I remember about four tons to low Earth orbit, mm-hmm. uh, the Long March 5 is about 25 tons. And the GSLV is capable of uh, lifting about 10 tons, I think. So India mm-hmm. still does not have a comparable rocket, right? But which might happen in the next few years. So that's something I... I, I and so if that happens, the next thing I see happening beyond Moon and Mars mission and, and Sun mission is that India will also build a national level constellation uh, similar to Starlink. And then this is the final kicker. India might establish its own space station. Mm-hmm. So because so India stay tuned. <laughs> yes, stay tuned. Because India has already started talking about building a mirror-like uh, low a lightweight space station just to prove mm-hmm. that India can do it by 2030. And so yeah, stay tuned. Namrata, thank you so much for a series of three very interesting conversations. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Namrata Goswami is a geopolitical security consultant with a special interest in space. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on X at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.